start with a question. What is the absolute worst part of going on vacation? Coming home. That's the worst part. Admit it. You've been there. Just a couple months ago, Tabitha and I went on our 10th anniversary trip. And we found her family members. We had a divide and conquer strategy where her family members in Ann Arbor watched all five of our kids. They just split them up. So Tabitha and I took a week, a week, we got a week um, to go on a, on a trip. And it was just it, no kids waking you up in the morning, no kids asking where breakfast was. I mean, it was just, it was just heavenly. And then... I am coming back on the airplane and I check how many unread emails I have from work. And I, I can't remember exactly, but I think I'm pretty sure it was over 400. It's like, well, this is great. Um, and so trying to process through those, it took me, I can't even remember how long to even just process through them, much less get back to them. And then, of course, we finally ultimately get back to Ann Arbor and we've got five children again. And, of course, we love our children, but you know what I mean. And the worst part of going on vacation is coming back home. And I thought of this because I can't get over the contrast between what we talked about last week with Jesus on the mountain being transfigured in front of his disciples, and between what we're going to talk about this week, what happens when he gets down from the mountain? He's on top of the mountain. The glory of God just breaks out. It's not a spotlight shining on him. It's a candle blazing from within him. It's his divine nature glowing through his skin, through his clothes, radiant white. His disciples are just there. They can't hardly even look at him. They don't know what to say. Here's Moses and Elijah miraculously brought into his presence. The law and the prophets confirming that this is the chosen Messiah, the God's king of his kingdom come to earth. This is the son of God as God thunders from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Hear him. I mean, you talk about a literally transcendent experience that Jesus and three of his disciples have. And then they walk down from the mountain. Can you just see this? They walk down from the mountain and Jesus suddenly is confronted by an argument. Not just by an argument between the scribes who hate him and his other nine disciples. But then there is this dramatic event of this boy. This tragic story of this boy who's been demon oppressed, demon possessed. How it's led to his near destruction over and over again. Epileptic like episodes, but ultimately controlled by a demonic force that is throwing him into the water to drown. Throwing him into the fire to be burned. Can you imagine what his parents lived with from the time he was a child? And it I get the picture, it's like, welcome back to the real world, guys. You're on the mountain. The glory of God is revealed. You see it, you experience it, and now you're thrown right down into the valley, into the real world, into the 
real life, if you will, and all the demonic oppression and opposition and faithlessness that Jesus confronts in life down here. You know, friends, this is something of a Christmas story. As I said last week, these passages are kind of Christmas stories, even if they have nothing to do with the birth of Christ, because ultimately the picture of this story is Jesus coming down from his glory to deal with, can I say it, the real world? The world that we've messed up? The brokenness that is a part of life where Satan has power? The spirit, as Ephesians 2 says, the spirit, the demonic spirit that works in the children of disobedience. The pain and brokenness of relationships that have been severed. The pain and loss of these parents who look at their child tormented and afflicted like this and grieve over it undoubtedly every day. Real world stuff. Real life stuff. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus who came down from the mountain of his glory to get his hands dirty in all of our stuff, in all of our pain and grief and sin. But ultimately, this isn't just a Christmas story because there's a lesson in it that comes back over and over. It comes back when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you faithless generation. The problem here is a lack of faith. Then when the man looks at him as this grieving father, this heartbroken father, and says, Lord, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And Jesus says, you got the if in the wrong place, buddy. It's not if I can. It's if you can believe because all things are possible to him that believes. And then when Jesus confronts his disciples and they say, how come we couldn't cast him out? How come we couldn't have this power? He said, this kind comes forth by nothing except the prayer and fasting that builds your faith for exactly this kind of moment. Friends, this is about faith. And my point tonight or this morning is simply this. If you want to live in the real world, the real world of brokenness and loss that we recognize even at this Christmas season, you're going to have to know what faith is. And your faith is going to have to be built to walk and to live and to make a difference in the real world below. The title of the message this morning is Faith for Life Below. Faith for Life Below. Faith, if you will excuse the expression, for the real world and all of its tragedy and crises and loss. The first thing we're going to look at in this passage is what I'm going to call the crisis. The crisis, because there are multiple crises that are going on here. There's the crisis of suffering. Notice with me here, let's start in verse 14 and just begin working our way through these verses together and trying to understand them together. And then once we understand them, drawing the applications that I think the Spirit of God would want us to draw this morning. First of all, the suffering. Notice here in this crisis of suffering in verse 14, and when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. The idea here is arguing. So the scribes were the ones who were the interpreters of the Mosaic law of the Old Testament, and they couldn't see Jesus 
as the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. Their eyes were just blinded to it. They were, they were clouded to it. They couldn't see. And so they opposed him. They stood resolutely against him. And so it's not a surprise that they were bickering. But now they're bickering with the nine disciples of Jesus that were left behind. The nine other than Peter and James and John. Now, verse 15 says, in straightway or immediately, again, one of Mark's favorite words, immediately all the people, when they beheld him, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. They greeted him. So can you picture this? There's this group, Jesus' nine disciples and the scribes, and they're arguing. And the people are crowding around them, listening in, overhearing this argument. They're just curious by the scene that's going on. And suddenly they look, and here comes Jesus. And he's coming with his three disciples. And can you just imagine the whole gravity of the crowd? Whoosh! As they move over. They run up to Jesus. They greet him. And notice what Jesus says. Jesus asks the scribes, what question are you with them? What, what are you arguing about? Well, the scribes don't answer at this point, And the disciples don't answer at this point. Who answers Verse 17, and one of the multitude answered, one of the group, and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which, which has a dumb spirit. Now, we've got to understand what this is. Dumb means mute. It doesn't mean intellectual capability. Here, the idea is of, of mute. You're not able to speak. And by a spirit, he means, as we'll see later, literally a demonic force, a demonic spirit. If you have any doubt about whether there are such things as demonic spirits, you might ask yourself, well, do I believe in God who is a spirit? Well, I hope the answer is yes. Do I believe in angels who are the ministers of God? Well, if the answer to that question is yes, then I don't see why, according not only to the plain teaching of Scripture, but just logic and reason, that if you believe in a God who is a spirit and angelic beings who are ministers of God as the spirits, that you also would not equally recognize a demonic spirit, the opposing spirit, that there are those spirits, angels, if you will, demonic, fallen beings in this world whose job is to oppose the work of God in this world and to oppose any progression in the life of God, in the, human, in, the, in the human being. It's absolutely something we see over and over again in Scripture. We've seen it over and over in this book of Mark. And we see it again here. A boy who tragically has a demonic oppression, a demonic spirit that renders him mute. Now notice here in verse 18. And wheresoever he, that is the demonic spirit, taketh him, the boy. This boy is controlled by this demonic spirit. He tears him, he dashes him. What is he saying? Notice, he, he foams, he gnashes with his teeth, and he pines away. The idea here is this word is, is dry, he's withering. It's, it's absolutely having a destructive impact on his life. Now, some have noted that this is, sounds very much like an epileptic seizure, someone who is falling on the ground and convulsing and having other issues like a grand mal seizure. And some would skeptics or critics would say, well, this is just a description of a kind of an epileptic episode. No, no. Because notice what this father says again in verse 22. He says, oft times, often, it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. 
This is not merely an, a, a, a problem of brain chemistry. It's not merely a medical condition. It is a destructive power in his life that is seeking to destroy him. And friends, we can just pause here and to say that from this passage and many others, the aim of the devil and of all his spirits and of all his demonic forces is to destroy you. That's what it is. And what a tragedy it, it, it is in this world when there are those who are set against the work of God in their lives. They are pursuing things they know are harmful. They know are destructive. And they keep on pursuing them anyway. They keep on pursuing them. You see, even the sins that you and I give ourselves into, the sins, we, well, that's not a big deal. Friends, they are. They are part of the demonic desire to see your in, entire destruction as a human being made in the image of God. And so we see here this, this picture of this boy helpless in suffering, ultimately pursuing by his, this, this demonic force within him his destruction. But it's not just his suffering, it's the suffering of his family, the suffering of his parents. Can you put yourselves in that place? You put yourself there. This father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Help us. Help us. It's not just this boy. It's us. I remember my mom telling me over and over again, my parents told me, I was a very kind of star-crossed kid. I had multiple near-death experiences when I was a little boy. Once we were walking down by the St. Croix River and I, for some reason, decided to jump in. I was like two. And my mom grabbed me literally by my diaper as I was floating away downstream. But one in particular, she said I was, um, I was in, a, in a, our old house in Matamida, if any of you remember that. And there was a three seasons porch that was screened in on all sides, looking down a story to a concrete patio. And my mom was in the other room, and she mentioned hearing my dad just shriek. I mean, just like scream. And I had just as a young child, one or two, I'd been leaning up against that screen, and it gave way. And I was tottering, about to fall onto the story drop, onto the concrete. And my dad grabbed my foot as I was about to fall out. And my mom, as you can ask her, it was like, what's next? Like, where, how, what other issues, near-death experiences is he going to have? And my parents always told me, says, God is preserving you for something. You need to take that very seriously. But any of you who are parents, any of you who have been in that situation of, of seeing your child on the brink of something destructive, you know that panic. You know that, Lord, help. And now put yourself in the position of this father and mother who from his childhood, how many times have they rescued him from the water, do you think? How many times do you think they jerked him away from the fire and say, no, it's destructive? How many times have they delivered him from death and now at their wit's end, in full of this suffering, they come to Jesus? And that's why the crisis here is not just their suffering, but failure. Notice what he says to Jesus. And I spake, verse 18, to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Wow. They bring him to the nine disciples that were remaining. Where's Jesus? Well, Jesus is up there. Well, okay, well, how about you guys? Can you cast him out? And notice, 
by saying they could not, it's like they, it appears they tried. They tried and they couldn't. It didn't work. And then what happens? Who is always there waiting for failure, apparent failure or contradiction? The scribes, aha, we got him. His disciples can't cast him out. And then, of course, of course an argument happens. Of course a dispute happens. What were they arguing about? I have no idea. But you can imagine the disciples embarrassed, ashamed, probably a little bit. Their pride was hurt. And so they start arguing and they're getting in a fight. It's just a, a crisis of complete failure. By the way, there's just an Old Testament picture I think that you need to see here. Do you remember when Moses went up to the mountain and saw the glory of God revealed to him? What did he see when he came down from the mountain? Failure. Aaron made a calf, golden calf. These are your gods that brought you down to Egypt. Moses so infuriated that he took the two tablets of the Ten Commandments and smashed them on the ground in just anger at the failure that he was coming down to. And now Jesus comes down from the mountain. It wasn't his glory that, he, that was revealed to him. It was his glory revealed. And like Moses, he comes down from that mountain, and what does he see? Failure. His disciples are unable to cast out this demon. Look at what Jesus says in verse 19. Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you, literally put up with you? How long do I have to bear with you? Bring him unto me. What is Jesus saying here? When Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, the first thing I think he's talking about is his disciples. What's the problem? Disciples, you are faithless. Now, what an amazing thing. What does he mean when he's talking about his disciples when he says, you are a faithless generation? Well, again, think about back that analogy to Moses. Do you remember in the number of times God grieved over the faithlessness and unbelief of his people in the Old Testament? Listen to Numbers chapter 14. The Lord says to Moses after they heard the testimony of the, two, the, the 12 spies that had gone into the land, the promised land, and said, no, it's too scary. We don't want to go in there. Listen to what God says to Moses. And the Lord said, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be before they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? And now Jesus comes down from the mountain and he could have said the same thing. How long, disciples, will it be until you believe me? Until for all the signs that I've showed among you, this is an entirely faithless generation. Wow, what a crisis is in front of them. And again, I just want for all of us now to just draw the contrast here. The contrast between Jesus on the mountain and what's going on in the valley. In the mountain, the glory and power of Christ is revealed. In the valley, the power of Satan is controlling. In the mountain, the law and the prophets are confirming Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the king, as the one who has come to be listened to. And down below, you see the disbelief of the scribes that are opposing him. They sit in the seat of Moses and say, you're not the one that's coming. Up in the mountain, there's a father who is delighting in his divine and only son. And in the valley, there's a father who is lamenting and grieving over a broken and demonically oppressed son. By the way, Luke 9 tells us this was his only child. His only child. 
God's only son delighted in on the mountain. This father's only son broken and oppressed down below. Up on the mountain, there are three disciples who are seeing the glory of God revealed, and they are speechless. They have no idea what to say, just lost in worship and wonder at what they see. And down in the valley, there are nine disciples, utterly faithless, utterly unbelieving, and utterly powerless to make a difference in the world. Up on the mountain, down in the valley, down in, if you might allow it, the real world. And Jesus is... This story of Christmas is he's coming down into our real world. He's coming down into our faithless generation. He's coming down into the places where the devil has power and where he is oppressing and seeking to destroy human beings who are made in the image of God. And too often he confronts unbelief rather than faith. This is a crisis ultimately of faith. But notice secondly here the condition of the cure. The crisis in the valley, which is a crisis of faith, the condition of the cure. Will you notice with me here? Jesus says, and well, look first at verse 20. After Jesus says, bring him unto me. What a wonderful truth. You could preach a whole sermon on that. Spurgeon actually did. He and they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway, immediately the spirit tore him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming again, an incident right in front of Jesus. And he, Jesus, asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child, we've been dealing with it since the time he was small, and oftentimes it has cast him into the fire, into the waters to destroy him. But look at this, but if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. Oh, I, is there a more moving scene in Mark than this one? A dad who's been dealing with us and says, Jesus, I'm not doubting your compassion, but if you can do anything, please do it. Have compassion and help us. And notice what Jesus responds. Jesus said unto him, if you can believe... All things are possible to him that believeth. You know, notice what Jesus is saying. This almost is, what well, really is a rebuke. Jesus doesn't go and put his arms around him first. He says, wait a second. If I can, if I can, that, that's your question. If I can, and in love, and I'm sure gently, and perhaps with a little bit of a smile on his face, he said, if you can. That's the question. Not I, you. If you can believe. Now think about this for a moment. It would be like you or, or, or I going up to Bill Gates and asking him for something and saying, Bill, if you can afford it, Bill Gates would be right to look at you and say, oh, we, <laughs> that's not the question. The question is not whether I can afford helping you out of whatever financial situation you're in. That's not the question, buddy. And Jesus is saying the exact same thing. The question is not whether I can. I can. The question is whether you can believe. Because he says all things are possible to him that believes. Now we need to stop here and make sure we understand what Jesus is saying. Let me be very clear. Faith is not positive thinking. It's not. Faith is not powerful in and of itself. 
Notice that Jesus is not saying, if you believe, you will create the power for your son to be healed. That's not what he's saying. Because Jesus is already implicitly saying to him, where's the power? It's in me. I can. You say, can you? And I say, yes, I can. It's whether you can believe. Faith is not positive thinking. It's not just thinking, oh, this might happen. It is not creating power in and of itself. What is faith? Faith is tapping into the power. Faith is the vehicle. It is the vessel by which power comes. Now, if you were to go downtown and you were to go on our light rail transit system, you would get into a vehicle that weighs thousands of pounds. And that vehicle in and of itself has no capability of movement, none. There is only one thing that can make that vehicle move effortlessly at speeds up to 30 or 40 miles an hour. What is it? It's the wire that runs directly over the light rail train system. But the problem is, if there's no connection between the wire and between the car, that car's not moving a bit. And you see on all those light rail systems, you see the arm that goes up from the vehicle, up from the car, to connect to the power source, to connect to the wire. And when it does, that vehicle moves effortlessly. The arm is faith. What Jesus is saying to him is, there's no problem in the power source. There's no problem in the wiring. There's no problem in the electrical current that is operating in this situation. The question is only whether you can believe to tap into it, to trust the power source. Instead of trying to get behind that big thousand-pound car and push it yourself, what is faith? Faith is seeing the power of God for a particular situation. And faith is trusting the power of God to complete exactly what God desires. Jesus is saying, if you can believe, not positive thinking, not creating my own power, my own energy, but trusting unreservedly the power that I have in my willingness to accomplish it on your behalf. Now notice what the father says. Straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. What an amazing statement, friends, because it's so real. It's so genuine. It's so honest. Here's what he's saying. Lord, I do believe. I do believe that you have power. I do believe. But Lord, there's still some unbelief. I still have some doubts. I saw your disciples not able to do it. You, I, my, the situation has been so longstanding, so grief-creating, Lord. So help my unbelief. You know it's there. Oh, friends, what a glorious picture. I wonder how often we need to say to God, God, you know I believe, but help that unbelief that you know is still there. Help those nagging doubts. Help those times where I give in to my own self-centered thinking. 
where I begin to be swayed by what I see around me. You see, what's the point here? The point here is that there was a Jesus on the mountain. The Jesus on the mountain was the one who was the creator of the universe, the king in God's kingdom fully revealed. And here this man was down in the valley looking at all his circumstances, looking at how long this had been going for, looking at the failure of the disciples. And here he has a choice. And is he going to put his eyes on the Jesus who is the king and who is the creator of the universe? Or is his eyes going to be down in the valley at his son, at the demonic oppression, at all the difficulty? And Jesus is saying, look at me. Look at me. I can and I will. Can you believe? You see, this wasn't powerful faith that this man had. It was faith that was maybe a little bit more like a grain of a mustard seed. But he was able to say, Lord, I believe and help any part of me that doesn't. That was the faith that could move a mountain. And it was the faith that Jesus was looking for in that situation. Look at verse 25. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, you mute and deaf spirit, I charge you, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried, shrieked, screamed, and rent him, tore him sore, and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Complete healing. You see, friends, do you know the same thing is true on a level for all of us living down here in the valley, if you will, in the real world? Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, therefore, we are always confident trusting, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. He's saying this. There's more to life than this human body. The real life, the real world, my eternal home is with him. It's to be present with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, I'm confident. And then he says these famous words, for we walk by faith, not by sight. You see the picture? In this body, in this real world down here, I walk by sight, if you will. I look at my circumstances. I'm discouraged by my circumstances. I face crises, and they seem too big for me, and I'm tempted to be overwhelmed and unbelieving and faithless. But he says, we walk by faith. We walk by the eternal reality, by the spiritual reality that we read of in the word of God, that we trust as we see the Christ on the mountain who is the creator of the universe and the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the one who came on down to be incarnated among us and deal with our brokenness and deal with our difficulties. And Paul says we walk by faith, by what we see with with the eye of faith not with what we see with the eye of human sight. Friends, do you want to live life down below in the real world with all of its crises and all of its discouragements and all of its challenges? You and I are going to need to learn to walk not by sight, by human sight, by what we see in our circumstances. We're going to have to learn how to walk by faith knowing who Jesus is up on that mountain who he is in all the glory and power of Almighty God with a compassionate heart and a powerful hand to deliver you and to make you look more like him. You see, that's what this story is all about. 
It's about how to live in a broken world. And it's not going to be walking by human sight. It's going to be walking by faith, by seeing what we cannot see. I've been going through my, with my children, Hebrews chapter 11, together at our family devotion times. And just going through these Old Testament stories, and we've adopted a little bit of saying, I'll ask them, what is faith? And they say, faith is seeing what you can't see. Faith is seeing what you can't see. Yes. Faith is seeing what is real more than what is straight in front of you by your circumstances. There is a crisis in the valley. There's a condition of the cure. If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And finally and quickly, there's a connection for our faith. Will you notice with me here, verse 28, and when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, saying, why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, this kind, this kind of demonic activity can come forth, can come out by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Now this may seem very curious to us and very strange. Let's just make a connection here very briefly before we close. You could preach a whole sermon on this and that's beyond our time today. But let's just say this. What did Jesus already say was his disciples' problem? Why couldn't they cast him out? A lack of faith. He said, oh, faithless generation. So what he's saying is they couldn't do it by faith. And now he's connecting it to saying this kind, this could only have come by prayer and fasting. Now again, faith is not positive thinking. Faith is not creating power in and of yourselves. What is faith? Faith is tapping into the power source. And so what is he saying to them? Your faith... Your lack of faith was caused by your lack of prayer. Your lack of fasting. What is he saying here? I think just briefly he's saying this. Number one, they should have been praying and they weren't. You know, friends, prayerlessness will always poorly equip us to live down here below. A lack of prayer will always hinder our ability to walk by faith. Can I just encourage you, wherever you're confronted this week, by a difficult crisis, a situation, no matter how big or how small, go to prayer first. Don't try to do it on your own. Do you have a difficult conversation to have this week? Make sure you're, you've prayed about it before you go. Do you have a challenge that you're facing? Do you have a financial crisis, a situation? Have you prayed about it? Have you talked to God about it? That's one thing we can just say very briefly. But the other thing is this. I think we need to understand what prayer truly is. Sometimes we think of prayer as being, I just need to go to God and I just need to ask him for stuff. God, I've got a laundry list, almost like a, a, a checklist that I have, kids have for Santa. God, I, I want this and I want that, I want this, and I'm just going to tell you those, and now I'm going to go on my day. That's not how Jesus thought of prayer. Prayer, if you can just think about it like this, is connecting with God. It's communicating with God. That's why I've told you before, you should pray oftentimes with your Bible open on your laps or open in front of you on your knees so that you can read God speaking to you and then you can speak right back to him. You take what he's saying to you and then you start talking to him about what he showed you in his word. Maybe you're going to confess something that he showed you. Maybe you're going to praise him for something that he showed you. Maybe you're going to ask him for something that he showed you with your Bible open in front of you. Why? Because prayer is communicating with God. And so here, friends, we need to see that prayer is not just about expressing our faith, speaking our faith. God, I believe. I'm praying. I'm asking you for things. 
Prayer is building faith because prayer is seeking the will of God for a particular situation. Oh, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know. I can't do this on my own, God. you got to help me. Show me what I should be doing right now. It seeks the will of God. Prayer helps us to see the will of God. It helps direct us to the word of God to find the promises of God that we can stand in faith on and say, God, you promised, and so I trust you. I believe you. Prayer helps us to see the will of God. And then do you know what prayer does? It not only helps us to seek the will of God and see the will of God, prayer helps us to submit to the will of God. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He he knew exactly what God's will was for him. And do you remember what he said? Oh, God, Father, not my will, but thine be done. And how often does God build our faith by when we're on our knees or having a time of prayer before God, he shows us what he wants from us in a particular situation. And then uh, we are confronted with, will I say, God, okay, it's your will, I'll do it. Do you know what that kind of prayer does? It builds your faith. It keeps you in connection with God. It keeps you in close communication with God. Can we just say it like this so you can make a difference in the world? So that you, by faith, can be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in a broken world. You may never be called upon to cast a demon out of someone, friends, but that doesn't mean that you can't oppose the devil every single day wherever you see him at work. How are you going to do that? You're not going to do it walking by sight, by the circumstances of your own life that are going to confuse you and bring you into your own crises. No. You're going to do it when you walk by faith with a consistent prayer life that is seeking communication and connection and communion with God and having your faith built by what you can't see with these eyes, but you can see with the eyes of faith and making a difference in the real world. Friends, what is the Christmas story about? It's about Jesus coming down, if you will, from the mountain of his glory to live in the real world and take on all of our griefs and all of our sorrows and all of our brokenness, to call us to walk by faith in the eternal realities that we can't see right now, but we will eternally. And then he enables us to be his hands and feet in a broken world, confronting the devil and his works wherever we see them, and walking by the faith that is able to tap into divine power and make a difference in this world. Friends, if you want to walk in this life below, you're going to need to walk by faith. May that start with prayer.